In the decade of the 1970s, even the great hero Superman was not spared the ravages of money-hungry producers. In these times of fear and confusion, the job of bringing him to screen was the responsibility of Richard Donner, a popular American director whose demand for verisimilitude had become a symbol of hope for fans of Superman. Welcome to episode 117 of the Man of Screen Podcast. I am your host, Mike Zumo, and in this episode, I'm going to continue my coverage of Superman the Movie with chapters 21 through 30 on the Theatrical Cut Blu-ray. And if you are watching on either the uh, Director's Cut and or the Extended Edition, chapters 21 through 32. Basically, that will take us through the uh, super feat after the uh, helicopter sequence and Right through Lois's uh, interview with the Indian chief on the uh, land fraud deal. And as usual, I won't be alone. Not as many guests this week, uh, but I will have Andrew Leland in the house with me. He'll be the Amanda Screen Podcast's first international guest. So there's that to look forward to on the other end of uh, the podcast for more break. But before we get to uh, the business of this week's episode, I have feedback to address. A couple of emails, actually, the first of which is from Dave McElvenny. Dave is writing in on Man of Screen, episode 106. Dave writes, Greetings, Mike. Huzzah! Another season of Super Friends in the books. I'm looking forward to the coming season with more of the familiar DC villains, but at least in this episode, we definitely get to see several bad guys who were actually motivated by evil, like revenge, and this will reach a tie point in the series when we get to see the Legion of Doom. Will the worlds collide? As you point out, Reminiscent of Panic in the Sky, but with the added attraction of all the Super Friends, it was good to see Superman try to stop the approaching planet, because that's what Superman does. But the Kryptonite sidelined him, allowing the other Super Friends to have their moment in the sun. I enjoyed Time Rescue more than I should have, but I really enjoy seeing Superman teamed up with Hawkman and Hawkwoman. They're all aliens on Earth who can easily pass for human. They all fly, and in many versions, Hawkman and Hawkwoman, like Superman, have greater strength and endurance than normal humans. It always seems that they should hang out more than they do. You mentioned the Hawks' homeworld of Thanagar, described it as militaristic and sort of fascist. These elements were not really present in the comics of the time these cartoons originally aired, but came into play post-Crisis on Infinite Earths and into the mid-to-late 1980s. I think maybe with the publication of the Hawkworld series. In the 1970s, the good guys were still pretty uniformly good, without a lot of nuance or shades of gray. 
In The Ghost, it was fun to see Gentleman Jim Craddock, a.k.a. The Gentleman Ghost. I always enjoyed seeing his unique look, where his head was completely invisible, but with a top hat and a monocle. His scheme to turn people into ghosts was odd, though. I thought the way you turn people into ghosts was to kill them. It was good to see Superman work with Green Lantern and Rampage. These two seemed like a good pairing. You wondered at one point why Green Lantern used his ring to make a jet rather than just fly. One of the things Green Lantern often liked to do in the comics in those days was to use his ring to shake things. To make things, like giant boxing gloves to stock the bad guys. It makes sense that Hal Jordan, the test pilot, would use the ring to make a jet, I think. I'm looking forward to Challenge of the Super Friends with more heroes and more villains. And maybe more expositional phone calls. Live long and prosper, Dave. Well, as usually, as usual, thank you, Dave, for writing in. And, you know, I really don't have a ton to add to Dave's uh, comments. Dave's comments, as always, are pretty complete. And uh, I would and thank you, Dave, for correcting me on uh, the interpretation of Thanagar. And uh, you are absolutely, I don't know a lot about Thanagar pre-Crisis and Infinite Earth, but I definitely do remember the uh, the fascist uh, Thanagarian government. I you mentioned the Hawk World series where that came into play. I think that came into play really for the first time in 88-89 during the invasion crossover, if you remember. The Thanagarians were part of the alien alliance that attacked the Earth. But even then, Hawkman and Hawkwoman were still good guys while the Thanagarians were the bad guys. Just the Hawks seemed to have such a weird and complicated history within the uh, DC Universe. And the 90s, in the 80s and 90s really did the Hawks no favors. And I really don't have anything to add on... Uh, Rampage or the Gentleman Ghost. Dave's comments pretty much speak for themselves. So I do have another email that is uh, pretty timely to some of the things we've been discussing. It refers to a Black Vulcan, and this email comes from TJ Walsh, and he this is the first time TJ's writing to the show, so thank you, TJ, for writing in. The subject of TJ's email is reason for Black Vulcan instead of Black Lightning. So like I said, very timely. So TJ writes, Hello Mike, I've been enjoying your podcast since I started listening during your Adventures of Superman coverage. I have some information about a topic you covered during your Super Friends coverage. Today at Baltimore Comic Con, and just for information, uh, TJ wrote this email on September 30th. Today at Baltimore Comic Con, I went to the Tony Isabella Spotlight panel. In discussing his career, he talked about his time at DC when he created Black Lightning. There was supposed to be a partnership agreement about the character, mainly that any major decisions about the character would require Tony's agreement. When Super Friends asked to use Black Lightning, DC was supposed to pay Tony's character use fee from the money DC received, but DC did not want to. Instead, DC told Hanna-Barbera that Hanna-Barbera would need to pay Tony separately to use Black Lightning. So Hanna-Barbera, quote-unquote, created Black Vulcan instead to avoid the issue. For what it's worth, Tony said that a couple years ago, he and DC came to an agreement that is mutually beneficial to both him and the company. And he was quite complimentary about Dan DiDio, Jim Lee, and the rest of the people he's working with at DC now. He called his recently completed Black Lightning Cold Dead Hands miniseries the best writing of his career and indicated that it, it would not have turned out as well without the cooperation he received from DC. Thank you, TJ Walsh. So uh, thank you, TJ, for writing in. Uh, you know, it's definitely be- best to hear it right from uh, from the horse's mouth. And uh, I have no reason to dispute what TJ wrote. I didn't independently verify it, of course. But, you know, it makes sense. This is – we had talked about how before the uh, – the reason for using Black Vulcan as opposed to Black Lightning was a matter of money. DC, or Hanna-Barbera, just didn't want to have to pay the use fees for the true character of Black Lightning. And basically, they created a character that was so reminiscent of Black Lightning that I'm kind of amazed that uh, they managed to walk away without a lawsuit. So thank you, TJ and uh, Dave, for writing in. I encourage anyone else who wants to write in... To do so, man the screen at gmail.com. So right now I'm going to take a quick break, play a podcast promo, and then I'm going to come back with 
Andrew Leyland, and we're going to continue my coverage of Superman the movie. Hang around, folks. The Fantastic Arse is your guide to the Fantastic Four from the beginning of the Marvel Age of Comics in 1961 onwards. Each week, Steve Lacey and Andy Leyland cover every issue, spin-off, guest appearance and cameo, and more. And in 2015, we begin our journey through the decade that taste forgot, the 1970s. Join us as we take a look at... The departure of Jack Kirby and Stan Lee. The Kree Skrull War. The arrival of Marvel Team-Up. Bill Murray as the Human Torch. Creators including Roy Thomas, George Perez, Marv Wolfman, Jerry Conway, Rich Buckler and John Byrne. And of course, Marvel 2-in-1. All this and more at ffcast.libsyn.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. The Fantastic Cast. Insert catchy tagline here. Wait, what? All right, welcome back, folks. Uh, welcome back to uh, part three of Superman the Movie Month, and I believe I have the podcast uh, first uh, international guest with me uh, with, with me this week. Uh, many of you may know him as uh, one of the hosts of Hey Kids Comics, as well as the Fantastic Cast, Listen to the Prophets, Palace of Glittering Delights, and the Overlooked Dark Knight. I have Andrew Leyland with me. Uh, how you doing today, Andy? I'm doing fine, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. That list gets longer every time I appear with somebody, doesn't it? <laughs> did, I, did I miss anything? Not as far as I know, but you can <laughs> say what will have happened in between now and this going up. Right, well, I, I don't know if we'll be picking up anything between now and October, so... Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't have thought so, no. I mentioned Overlook Dark Knight, right? Yes, yes, you did, which I do with Michael Bell, which is always fun. Which I actually just did the reading for last night. Brah. Which episode is that? Uh, I just read Batman Adventures 25. Oh, right, good. The Superman Batman mop. Yeah, so, um, as usual, I'm behind on stuff I listen to. <laughs> Don't worry about it. It's always there for you whenever you're ready. That's the beauty of podcasting. It, it is. Although although I, I, although I do want to say, I think the first one I listened, the first one of your podcasts I listened to was Hey Kids, and I, I really liked hearing uh, the relationship between you and, uh, and Michael talking about comics. Mm, that was quite good, that, for five years when he was growing up, and now it's... Every couple of months, uh, every six months at the moment, because right. he's just so busy. But, you know, that's what happens when you leave home, isn't it? Right. It, it is. And, you know, I, I said this on Facebook and, uh, you know, the relationship you guys seem to have is the relationship I wish I had with my dad. So, well, you know, thank you. I <laughs> think. All right. So, uh, so Superman, uh, Superman, the movie, uh, just, uh, I guess, what was your origin story with this film? When was the uh, first time you saw it? Uh, Superman the movie holds the distinction of being the first film I ever saw at the cinema. I think I'd seen Pinocchio before it, but I don't count that because it was like a 70-minute animated movie. So the first live-action film I ever saw at the cinema was Superman the movie, which I believe I saw in St. Helens, which is where my mum lived. Um, I think it was an ABC, or it may have been my auntie and uncle who took me to watch this. I don't remember. But I do remember that Superman the movie was the first proper film I saw in the cinema. Oh, nice. And uh, how, old, how old were you at that point? Oh, God. So Christmas 78, I'll have been, what, four? Okay, so do you, do you actually uh, remember going to see it? I remember going to see it. Yeah, I don't remember much else about that. But I, I tend to remember a lot of the films that I saw at the cinema as a kid because I remember going seeing Flash Gordon. Uh, I remember seeing 
uh, Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, I suppose. I remember seeing The Empire Strikes Back, obviously. So I don't remember much about the individual experiences, but I do remember going seeing them. And normally what cinema that I saw them in, which is a marked contrast to now where I can't remember anything. <laughs> right, yeah. You see, I was uh, I was born two years after after this this movie, so you know I, I tell this story to people who ever ask. It is alleged that I saw Superman three in the theaters. Yeah, because I would have been about two at the time, so I must have been. Either, rem- I have no. You don't remember it? Yeah. No, my parents must have been crazy, or I must have been some kind of angel kid. <laughs> I lean, I lean toward number one, <laughs> and because uh, there's a story my mother likes to tell. That in 83, my father took me to see Return of the Jedi and Superman 3. And then she tried to take me to see Snow White. Oh, right. And I wasn't having it. <laughs> you rebelled against Snow White. I did. I must have. Yeah, that's fair enough. So my first uh, memory of Superman, seeing Superman in the movies is Superman 4, which, mm, look. Mm, yeah. Yeah, you know, most of the love for the film comes from remembering that experience more than the actual film itself. Yeah. So I definitely yeah, uh, see where, where you're going with that. Yeah, sometimes where you saw it and when you saw it has more of an impact on you on the film itself. Right. I mean, I'm sure we've all got something that we think is a bit drivelly that uh, doesn't hold up as an adult, but we still love it. Oh, absolutely. So what was, uh, you know, I guess even as a kid growing up and now into adulthood, what what has this film uh, meant to you? Uh, it's, it's for the longest time. It's been my all-time favourite movie. I think it's it's one of those films that you can just put on and thoroughly enjoy. It isn't a perfect movie. It's not like Back to the Future or The Terminator or some arty thing that I should mention as being the perfect film because there are problems with it. It is looking a bit creaky in places nowadays. When you see people do these YouTube mashups of all the Superman uh, different actors that have played Superman and try and make them a narrative. There was a recent one with Henry Cavill and Brandon Routh and Christopher Reeven where they tried to make it like a multiple Superman story. Oh, yeah, I and, saw that. And it's well edited, you know, fair play to the guy who put it together. But the Reeve stuff doesn't mesh with the Cavill or the Routh stuff at all. It's its its own thing. There's a furry tale quality to Superman the movie that isn't present in Man of Steel or Superman Returns. They're much more trying to be grounded than Superman the movie is. So it doesn't work when you take it out of context. But it's still it's still a film I can put on whenever I want or catch it on TV or whatever, and I will leave it on from wherever in the film it is, whether it's still the Krypton scenes or whether it's Superman's first night or whether it's I, I stumbled on it a couple of months ago and they were up to the, the tiny town being destroyed by big boulders. Right. And I, st- I still left it on. I still left it on until <laughs> the end because it's just one of those movies. It just leaves it. It's not perfect. John Trumbull, who writes for Back Issue magazine, recently described it as not perfect but magical. Right. And I think that's probably the best description of it. No, yeah, I, I, I definitely agree, especially watching uh, the sequence we're going we're gonna to be talking about on this episode. Some of the uh, – especially when you get to some of the uh, back uh, the back projection that he had to use – Mm. Some some of those elements, especially now watching it on a fifty five inch Blu ray on a high def TV, just the the cracks start to show in in the filming. But yeah, I, well, rear projection has never aged well at no. all. I mean, I was I was flicking. I was at uh, I was in London recently. I went to the Bond in Motion exhibit, exhibit mm-hmm. and the rear projection stuff with Sean Connery from Doctor No looks absolutely terrible nowadays. Even not on a particularly big screen, right? So it, it rear projection doesn't seem to age well for some reason. No, it, no, it doesn't. I mean, I've seen it with 
you know, way back when I was doing the Kirk Allen series, I could tell when he stopped that train, he's pushing on the screen. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things. Green screen's gotten much better at that, but I still think you can tell when it's rear projection. Right. So has your, you know, you know, obviously Superman is, uh, you know, was was born in America. How is? Do you have any idea how any idea how this movie was uh, received on your side of the pond? Uh, I, I vaguely recall it being received very well. I mean, remember, I was only four or five years old right. when the film came out. But looking over the the cut pieces or reviews of it, because I used to cut the reviews and the TV time stuff out of the TV listings magazines and stick them in a scrapbook. So every time the film was on, they would just repurpose the same review. But the reviews all tended to be quite positive about Superman and Superman 2. And it's interesting to look back in retrospect and see Superman 2 being better received than Superman the movie was and how that opinion has changed as time has gone on. And now it's largely Superman the movie is generally regarded as a classic. You know, Patty Jenkins clearly owes a debt to it for Wonder Woman. Right. Same with Captain America, the first Avenger. They both lent heavily into the, the Superman the movie template, as did Batman Begins, despite all being tonally quite different movies. Right. Uh, but the reviews since, oh God, I think since the mid 90s, it's generally started swinging the other way that Superman the movie is the better film. But it was well reviewed at the time that it came out. Right. as just a superior slice of, of cinematic fun, if nothing else. I think you'd have to be really churlish to dislike Superman the movie. Right. Even on a, well, I don't really like superhero movies level, this is the one that seems to transcend being a superhero movie. It was... Um, there's a film critic called Mark Kermode who's currently doing a BBC4 show called Secrets of Cinema. And in his first episode, which was about rom-coms, each episode is about a different genre of movies. Right. And he included Superman the movie. He said one of the strengths of Superman the movie is that there is a very strong element of screwball romantic comedy running right through the film. And he's, he's comparing and contrasting Reeve and Kidder to um, uh, Bringing Up Baby was the one, the clips that he showed were um who play, who's in bringing up baby i forgot his name is it carrie graham yeah i believe so well uh, his resemblance to suit to, to clark kent in those clips is surely something that can't be uh, a coincidence and that that kind of dialogue between between superman and lois and clark and lois and i don't think don has ever made any secret of the fact that that's what they were ripping off but to actually see side by side comparisons of the scenes and and kermode talking about the tropes of romantic comedy being applied to a superhero movie and uh, it's, again superman was the first film that did that they all do that now Right. You know, there's a strong thread of romantic comedy running through Captain America. Even Sam Raimi's Spider-Man films have that to them. Whether or not you think the various actors involved are as good at that right. as perhaps they should be, certainly on a scripting level, that's what they're going for. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely a lot of a different uh, different genres, you know, represented in, in this film. The sci-fi of Krypton, the, uh, you know, as I say, three films in one. But yeah. it is interesting that you mentioned how... Uh, the pendulum seems to swing from uh, Superman two back toward uh, this film as time progresses. That's kind of a, it's kind of the same way you know my own fandom has developed as a kid. You know, especially you know this movie was always there. I have you know no memory before this movie, so you know I always had this in Superman two. And as a kid, Superman two was my preferred because you know excitement. It's you know? got more action. It's got, in it it's as got a kid, more action. As a kid, I yeah. would always kind of just sit there and tolerate the uh, the origin stuff because you know when you're you know when you're between five and ten you just want to get to superman mm. you know all the other stuff is just you know, just bores you it wasn't until i started getting older and kind of wasn't until i started getting older and i started to appreciate the uh 
the nuances of uh, you know of the performance and uh, the, the masterful storytelling. Yeah, the 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 Krypton Smallville stuff is important in the overall scheme of things, and I think it's one of those cases where they they earned the first appearance of Superman being forty five minutes into the film. Right. Yeah, because, yeah, because you can say that. Oh, forty five minutes. He finally he finally shows up. You know, that's a, that's <laughs> and even even then, it's only for a brief minute, and then you've got to wait another 20, 15 minutes for actual Superman to do anything. Right. And, you know, even when we got to that part in the movie, I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about it. Because obviously, you know, when you when you go through a, a film like this, you analyze it a lot more. And you're thinking, did they really need to put this in? But you know what? They did. <laughs> because, you know, you needed to finally show him. Yeah. So. You need to, and they need to build up to it and earn showing Superman, and right. then show all the stuff that he can do. And Superman the movie does it masterfully. Batman Begins is probably the closest that the rip-offs have come. I say rip-offs, but you know what I mean. Yeah, I know. What have you come mean. to to following the same template. Batman Begins is beat for beat the same as Superman in its early forty-five, fifty minutes, yeah. and I think it's roughly the same amount of time in Batman Begins before you see Batman as it is in this film before you see Superman. Whereas even Captain America and Wonder Woman, they seem to speed up a little bit. Because certainly with Wonder Woman, she's 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 the little kid in the opening scenes, but then she's a woman, what, 10, 15 minutes right. into the movie? And even then, Wonder Woman's Wonder Woman. Right. Straight away, there's not really any getting of her powers stuff that they have to get through, which they have to do with the Captain America movie. No. And I, 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 never, I never clocked Wonder Woman... Because you know, when I watch that, when I watch that movie, I always say the scene where she becomes Wonder Woman is the No Man's Land, No Man's Land scene. Yeah, and I never but really she, clocked like where I that said, is in yeah, the movie. But like I said, she's she's Wonder Woman, irrespective of that. Right. That's the first big major action beat for her, where you go, "All oh, right, here she is." But she's already Wonder Woman. Uh, whereas with Superman, you've got to establish the Krypton and the origin and the powers and the Clark Kent stuff. Wonder Woman doesn't bother with any of that. It, it kind of tosses away the Diana Prince stuff. It's really quickly out the way. Right. Yeah, it's more or less an alias that she uses because she needs to. Yeah. So um, there are three versions of this film. Do you have a preferred version? Um, I I like the extended cut that was on the DVD from 2000 and whenever Superman Returns came out. Was it six? Is that movie over a decade old now? Jesus. Oh, what, um, the, oh the uh, director's cut? Yeah, I like that version. No, that might have been 2000. I'm, I'm not overly impressed with the sound mix on that one. I like the sound mix on the theatrical version. Right. But... Either one of those I can sit and watch quite happily. And what happens on TV, I've noticed, is those two are interchangeable. I don't know if it's the same with you, but the last one I caught, the ITV4 version, had the running the gauntlet scene in it. Right. Whereas when I caught it on TCM, roughly the same time, they didn't have that scene in it. So it seems like whichever version the TV network has bought they seem to be interchangeable between the theatrical version and the extended cut i don't mind the the recent blu-ray you know the three hour plus right. version that, that got released but in a lot of cases a lot of that is thank god all this was cut oh yeah i've uh, you know i've found that there's a lot of a quote-unquote richard donner humor in that uh three hour cut and i don't think richard donner does slapstick as well as he thinks he does no no certainly no not in superman he doesn't right because you know there are two. There are two things that I uh, that I do wish they put back in the director's cut. There's uh, which aren't in the other cuts. Right after the in the uh, longer version, the three hour one, there's this like thirty second scene after the helicopter of of the media people uh, kind of expressing their disbelief and Superman flying over it. I I always like that shot. Mm. And and then uh, there's 
one moment where the when he's chasing the missile, then the missile goes around him. Oh yeah, and he looks at it like, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, because it, even you know, even growing up, I'm actually I'm from New York City, where uh, which is Metropolis in these films. So I knew the geography well enough that I would always, even as a kid, I'd ask myself, how did he get behind it? Mm. I never understood how he got behind the missile. You know, now I know. Yeah, that is a nice little moment, that, where it's, it outfoxes Superman. Right. And it's a lovely little moment for Reeve to actually go, oh, right, okay. Yeah. <laughs> that, he, that he changed it. I'm like, yeah. like I said, I always said, why is he behind it? <laughs> yeah, so that is a nice little moment. It's just, you know, just those two. I mean, everything else is, oh, you can see why it's uh, not in the movie anymore. Yeah, uh, and a lot of that, let's be honest, is the Salkins just making as much money as they could. Yeah, and, you know, why not? Yeah, why not throw in all the coverage of somebody driving a car down a road? <laughs> and uh, they actually put a lot of stuff in, back into the uh, area of the film we're talking about. They added back in a lot of uh, Lex Luthor and Otis hijinks. Mm-hmm. All right, so why don't we, at the, at the moment, I'm going to take a quick break, play a promo, probably from a show Andy's on, and then we'll come back and talk about... Uh, the next uh, part of uh, Superman the movie. Hang around, folks. Oh, okay. The Long Halloween. Hush. Dark Knight Returns. The Killing Joke. These are all Batman stories that have been talked about and talked about countless times over the years. They are considered classics, and in most cases, that title is fitting. The thing is, Batman is nearly eight decades old, and whilst those stories are worth talking about, there are plenty of other Bat comics that are being a tad... overlooked. And that's where we come in. Hi everybody, my name is Michael Bailey. And I'm Andrew Leyland. Andy and I decided that it was a crime that there were so many great Batman stories out there that weren't getting their due. To that end, we started a show. The Overlooked Dark Knight, a non-index index show. Our goal is to talk about the previously mentioned Overlooked stories and tell you why they're worth your time. The show comes out twice a month, with the first episode focusing on the back books from the late 70s and early 80s. We're starting with the Len Wein run and working our way forward through the books written by Jerry Conway and eventually Doug Mensch. On the second episode of the month, we'll dig into the various adventure comics that were based on the Fox Kids slash Kids WB Batman animated shows because they're really good and hardly anyone seems to remember that they exist. The show can be found at the Fortress of Bailitude podcasting network, which is located at www.fortressofbailitude.com. The Overlooked Dark Knight, the non-index index show. Shining a bat signal on the bat stories that no one seems to remember or care about. Because somebody has to. All right, welcome back, folks. We're going to head into uh, the uh, next uh, segment of the film. Uh, you know, th- this segment is not going to be as uh, eventful as uh, either of the last two, as this is what people consider kind of the slow part of the movie. So some would say the pacing stops at this during uh, several scenes in this segment. We're going to start from the uh, end of the uh, helicopter sequence, right from right after Superman identifies himself as a friend, and until until Lois Lane's interview with the. Native American chief. almost called him Indian chief, but then I'll probably get angry emails. <laughs> so if you're watching the theatrical cut on your Blu-ray, that's chapters 21 through 30. In the extended cut, that's chapters 21 through 32. And if you're watching this on streaming, you're just going to have to figure out the times for yourself. Because I don't know them. So I, I have a brief synopsis from uh, Wikipedia of the uh, segment that uh, we're doing. 
Immediately after rescuing the helicopter, Superman goes on to thwart a jewel thief attempted to scale the Solo building. Captures robbers fleeing the police through the Fulton Market by depositing their cabin cruiser on Wall Street. And rescuing a girl's cat from a tree. He even saves Air Force One after a lightning strike destroys the poured outboard engine, making the quote-unquote cape to wonder an instant celebrity. Superman later visits Lois at her house the next night and takes her for a flight over the city, allowing her to interview him for an article in which she names him Superman. Meanwhile, Lex Luthor, the self-proclaimed greatest criminal mind of our time. Of our time. <laughs> thank you, saving me some editing there. <laughs> learns of a joint U.S. Army and U.S. Navy missile test. He then buys hundreds of acres of worthless desert land and reprograms one of the warheads to detonate in the San Andreas Fault sinking California and leaving Lex's desert as the new West Coast. Knowing Superman could stop his plan, Lex deduces that a meteorite found at Addis Ababa is actually part of Krypton, and he and his accomplices, Otis and Eve Tessmacher, retrieve a piece of it. All right, so, in general, what are some of your thoughts on this uh, segment of the movie? Um, you say that it slows down a bit, but the stuff, the stuff after he rescues Lois is great, and a lot of the flying effects are practical effects. A lot of the times it's reeving a harness. They are, they have never been bettered, the fl- the harness flying effects in this film. No, they are uh, the, the Superboy TV show came close because it had the same personnel working on it. But even though the budget limitations meant that they couldn't really do the same kind of maneuvers that they were doing here. But also an awful lot of it is how Reeve carries himself when he takes off from Lois after she faints. The way that he just turns around as he flies is really good. And that's all in how he's carrying himself and his body rather than the wires. Right. And then a lot of the first night stuff is just genuinely amusing. I mean, I do love the bit with the cat burglar. Right. He's climbing up the windows and he just sees this big pair of red boots in front of him. Hi there. Nothing wrong with the elevator? I mean, it shows Superman's mischievous side that he lets the guy fall and probably shit himself before he catches him and then deposits him off to the police. He doesn't just pick him up here. He has a bit of fun with it. (laughs) That's amusing. that's, That's quite funny. I like that. And then all the stuff with the... When it becomes a 70s crime caper for a couple of minutes with the, the police cars chasing the van through the streets and Superman catching up with them. But there's there's also some marvellous shots when the cat burglar's falling, Superman flies past him. Right. And the amount of wire work that there has to have gone into that, because Reeve has to be coming down faster than the burglar is. It's all just so masterfully put together. Especially when you consider that some of this was shot on a soundstage in London, some of it was actually in New York City. Um, we can nitpick that Reeve changes sizes within scenes. Yeah, it is very easy. <laughs> but you know, it all—it's just fun. It's just—it's just the first night stuff is all great fun. One of my notes, especially you know, right after the uh, the helicopter sequence, where you know they see him doing that little uh, aerial ballet with the camera there. Mm. So much of that is. Uh, Let's be honest. They want to show off a little bit. Yeah. And a lot of, I believe a lot of the uh, flight with Lois is that too. We figured out how to do this. Let's, let's, sh- let's show it off a little bit. Yeah. It's, it's the Star Trek, the motion picture scene where they fly around the enterprise. Right. It's showing off the new special effects technology. Uh, and your tolerance of that as a modern viewer, I suppose, depends on how much you're willing to give them the slack 
that 70s audience probably gave them because at the time 70s audience had never seen superman fly like this they'd never seen the enterprise look that majestic right whereas nowadays we're kind of used to it um i think most of it most of this stands up well i do like the 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 chase with the um, the criminals who are bank robbing that they get on a boat and then zoom away. Right. All all of that's really good. And again, the way Donna shoots it is you just see Superman landing in the background behind them. It's almost a very Batman shot when they look out the window and there he is. It's great. It's and really I remember the guy it. coming out of the hatch. Yeah, the guy coming out of the hatch behind <laughs> him clubs him with a crowbar. You know. <laughs> Bad vibrations? I mean, his gag there is terrible, but, you know, he's probably not seen a lot of James Bond films. He doesn't know how to deliver the one-liner yet. Right. And, you know, you know, as a kid, I've, I've played, I played baseball as a kid. I know what it's like when the bat vibrates on your hands. Mm. So I can only imagine what this guy must have felt hitting Superman with a crowbar. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and there's the bit with the two cops that's incredibly stereotypical, but really funny. Oh, with yeah. Big red boots and a cape. You don't believe me. I swear, fly in with a big red cape and bright red boots as well. Why should that scream? Because the week he was gone. Flew up in the air again, he did like a big bluebird. Like a big bluebird. You don't believe me. With bright red boots. Fly in. You want us to take the fly night in. off and go back to fly Murphy's in. bar and continue what you, you started? You was I'll be off in a few minutes and I'll meet you there you myself. Mooney. First bottle's on me. Let me get my hat. <laughs> Let me get my hat. Yeah, and uh, and they seem to imply that uh, I think what was he in the Mooney? Yeah, Officer Mooney. He had he might have had a loose relationship with sobriety. <laughs> you know, you know, very very Irish cop. And it, you know, and I love when he he doesn't say a word when Superman delivers the cat burglar to him. No, he just looks at him, looks at him. He has no idea what's happening. No. And then you've got the, the rescue of the cat, which I think personally plays better in the theatrical version. Oh, definitely. Where he just says goodbye, Frisky, and flies off, and he doesn't give the poor girl a lecture on looking after a cat. He put one down from there. Hey, cat, he come down. Come on down, you dumb cat. Come on. Frisky, you dumb cat, will you come down from there? Come on, Frisky, come on, come down. Hi, I'll get him. Come on. It's all right. Here you go, miss. Gee, thanks, mister. He's such a naughty cat. I always tell him not to. Oh, well, hold on now. Let's not be too hard on Frisky, okay? You know something? We all get a little afraid of heights now and again. Well, goodbye, Frisky. So long now. Yeah, especially uh, you know, saying that we all get a uh, have a fear of heights from time to time. Yeah, that uh, that doesn't play so well coming from a guy who can fly. I yeah. mean, how afraid of heights can he possibly be? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, I get what they were going for, but yeah. I, I, those lines of dialogue are best cut. Yeah, they they definitely are, and you know, the movie does obviously the movie doesn't show it. It took me a long time to realize this that the mother slaps the daughter. Yeah, 
<laughs> but that's that. The thing with that is, well, it's added in post, right? So somebody somewhere thought that was a funny gag to add in after the fact, right? <laughs> and and you know, you're looking at it now, going, okay, right? And listening to that line of dialogue, which again may have been added in post too, but you know, I'm thinking if my own kid came in and told me that. I think my first reaction would have been something like, oh, what? Yeah. Instead of, oh, you're lying. Yeah. I mean, especially seeing as the next day when she reads the newspapers, um, that mum's going to feel really bad. Yeah, she, or well, even that night when the news when the news comes on. Yeah. Uh, she owes her daughter an apology. Yeah, the little kid sitting there going, told you. <laughs> I love all the dubbed voices on Air Force One, because obviously these are all British yeah, actors. Yeah, all British actors, yeah. I've never actually heard the actual voices for, uh, for any of... Uh, for any of these guys, but, uh, you know, it would probably sound weird if I heard their real voices, actually, probably. Yeah, probably. I don't recognize any of them. I don't know whether these went on to be anything else, because, like, there are people in the background of Superman and people who have little bit parts. Right. Who I will go, oh, it's that guy from that sitcom. And because it, it's the same in Star Wars and Empire, you can spot all these people who went on to have greater fame on other British TV shows. Right. But, but yeah, these guys are quite badly dubbed. A couple of years ago, I went through all the uh, James Bond films. I'd never seen them. Especially the older ones. Yeah. But I'm like, at, at some point I'm watching, I don't remember which movie it was at this point, but I'm like, oh yeah, there's the cop from Superman 3. Yeah. The guy who stops the bus. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, a lot of crossover. Right. Because it was shot at Pinewood. Uh, this version I'm watching has the Superman Returns to the Fortress scene with Jarell, which isn't in the theatrical cut, is it? No, it's not. And that was one of, the, one of those scenes I've, I'd always seen pictures of it. Mm. You know, I'd always seen pictures of Superman at the Fortress talking to Jarrell, and I could never figure out where this came from. But but here it is. It they they put it back into the uh, the into the uh, director's cut. It's a scene I can kind of take or leave. Yeah, it's just another Jarrell dispensing sage wisdom and Superman just nodding his head. Right. Um, I mean, the only interesting part of this is Jarrell's urging of him to keep the secret identity. But you still must keep your secret identity. Why? The reasons are two. First, you cannot serve humanity 28 hours a day. 24. Or 24, as it is in Earth time. Your help would be called for endlessly, even for those tasks which human beings could solve themselves. It is their habit to abuse their resources in such a way. And secondly? Second, your enemies would discover their only way to hurt you by hurting the people you care for. Thank you, Father. Right, and his, because uh, it's apparent that he was not going to. Mm. He was just going to stay being Superman, which begs the question, why did he bother even going getting a job? Right. It, it, and, you know, even before that scene, I never thought of it before, but before the helicopter sequence, he really made no attempt to hide his change. Yeah. He did it right in the middle of the street, so maybe he was intending to, to... Well, you see, we never really find out what happens. Yeah, why did he get a job? Why did he uh, set up a life for himself and then to just... Was he planning to do everything in secret in that costume? Yeah, it's one of the it's one of the reasons I think that this scene is better cut because it starts the audience asking questions that this movie doesn't want them asking. Right. Such as why he's even bothering with the Clark Kent identity within the confines of this movie. Now, later iterations in the comics and the TV show and everything have gone to great pains to establish he thinks that he's Clark 
and Superman's just the guy that he becomes to go on do things. But this version was written when Superman was the main guy. Clark right. Kent was the disguise. And I think that entire scene does bring up the question of, well, why does he be Clark Kent then? So by cutting it, they're removing that from the moment. This There's another scene there as well with Richard Donner talking to Christopher Reeve. Yeah, that's in. that was not in the theatrical cut. No, that's cut from the theatrical cut as well. Yeah, which... But I, I, I like that being put back in too because there... I mean, obviously, if you don't know who that guy is, it means nothing to you. Mm. But there's Richard Donner, the director, playing on the you can, You'll Believe a Man Can Fly thing. Yeah, is is he playing the same character from Superman 2 who walked past Clark at the diner in the Arctic? Oh, was, was, was he in that scene? I'll have to... Yeah, Rich, Richard Donner walks in front of the car as Lois and Clark pull up. So I always wondered who filmed that scene. Yeah, that's a Donner scene because uh, somebody, uh, somebody once claimed... Lester did all of the diner stuff, and Donna Donna basically said, "If if Lester did all of that, why am I seen walking past the car?" Right. So uh, I do wonder if it's supposed to be the same character. Well, I do know a lot of scenes were reshot. Yeah, because in order to you know screw Donna out of his credit. Yeah, Screen Actors Guild rules and all that stuff. And yeah, I, I love Lex's lure. I love that he's got a swimming pool. <laughs> yeah, and uh, the, before we go on to Lex's layer, one 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 thing I do want to comment on the. Jorel and Superman scene. Oh yeah. The one thing you see is how isolated he is when he tries to hug uh, a floating head. Yeah, it, it is. They don't really play up his loneliness much. They don't, but which right. is a shame. Yeah, because I think that could have really worked. My my main issue with that scene though is how skinny Chris Reeve is on that full front shot. And yeah, you could tell that's easily one of the early shots. Mm. Yeah, he which does, is, he's yeah. not filling out the costume yet. His hair is completely different. Yeah. So, and I think a lot of this tightening up was, I think Donna realizes that he's been a little self-indulgent with all the Krypton and Smallville stuff. Right. And he needs to tighten up now. He needs to get the film, once Superman's on, he needs to get the film moving. Right. And a lot of these edits achieve that goal. It just, the, the pace of the film increases dramatically from Superman's first night. Right. And he does a lot of tightening up in, uh, in this part of the movie. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, especially once, he, once they get into their plot and, uh. There's a lot of little beat parts that are little comedy bits that are taken out. Yeah, which it's for the for better. A theatrical, yeah, for the better. I agree entirely. A lot of that, it, it not only tightens the film up, but it gives it a more serious tone in the later bits, where really it's left to Lex and Otis to be the comedy duo. Yeah, I always go kind of go back and forth what I think about Lex as uh, as comedy because I try to give Lex the benefit of the doubt and try to convince myself that he's not a comedic character and that most of the comedy from him comes from dealing with these two idiots that he's with. Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. I think Lex Lex's reaction to them is funny. But if you actually look at the way Hackman's playing it, he's not playing it as Lex being funny. Yeah, a lot of uh, but, exasperation and when he deals yeah. with Superman, a lot of smugness. Yeah, and a lot of the humor comes from the fact that he's playing off Ned Beatty and, and Valerie Perrine to a lesser extent. Right. So I, I don't. I don't agree with the idea that Lex is a comedy character in this film, which some people criticize it for. The guy's willing to nuke half of California. Right. There's nothing funny about that. No, and in the cutscenes, he's going to feed Miss Tessmacher to a... Does he, does he, is it a shark or something that he has a pet? It never... Uh... It's never revealed what it actually is. But he just I, calls I, them I, the babies, doesn't he? Yeah, I always thought it was some kind of, you know, exotic cat, like a, maybe a lion or a tiger or something. Mm. So all reference that. to the babies are cut out of the theatrical version. And then, right, and then it, by extension, they take out the scene of him 
showing up to save a Seth Marker at the end of the movie, which is not needed. It's not a scene that's really needed. It's not, but it does beg the question where Miss Tessmacher goes at the end of the film. Although if Superman too, she shows up and rescues them. So the theory is Superman bargained her a plea deal. She got a suspended sentence for helping him. Yeah, or she got a, a lighter sentence. Yeah. You oh, know. they just never caught her. Tessmacher took her powder the minute Superman takes um, Lex and Otis off to jail. She's like, screw this, and she's out of Dodge. Well, she should have been out. If she was smart, she'd have been out of Dodge uh, as soon as he flew away. Yeah, instead of waiting around for Lex to find out what she's done. Right. Okay, so you you were talking about Lex's lair with the swimming pool. I, I love his Lex's lair. I love it. I love that it's down underneath the, the train station. Right. I, I don't know how legitimate that is, but it's, you know, it's fun. His lair is, is a lot of fun. I will say this. There's a lot of abandoned uh, crap underground in New York City, so. All right, okay. The fact that the, I'm not sure there's anything this exotic down there abandoned, but there are abandoned train stations down there. And tunnels. Nothing to the extent of this, I don't believe, but... Sure. <laughs> Nothing with a swimming pool. And, the, and that wasn't always a swimming pool, so did he fill that? <laughs> yeah, that, I've always said, does he, has he carted the water in from somewhere? Does he clean the pool? Where's he getting the chlorine from? How did he get everything down there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's one of those villainous lures that's probably best not thought about too much. You can't bring the rental moving truck... 200 people, 200 people of the city. Yeah, he probably just had Otis do it all. He, he must have. Maybe he had a special train. <laughs> no, best I not thought of. But one thing I did notice that, you know, the, the movie at the end establishes that Lex is bald and he just wears wigs. Mm. Apparently Lex uh, swims with a wig on. Yes, he does. <laughs> because you see G. Hackman's sideburns coming out of the yeah. swimming cap. <laughs> so, well, again, we'll just ignore that. Yeah. I never noticed that before, actually. But yeah, there's, and I guess if you don't, you don't get out much. You have to uh, put your, uh, you need a UV lamp so you can tan. Yeah, because it, it, I mean, Otis obviously goes out a lot because that's what he's doing when we see the beginning of the film. So they're obviously not under kind of any kind of let's stay out of the way. So, right. but maybe Lex. The implication is Lex is well known as a criminal before the film even starts. Right. So Lex is probably the one who has to essentially stay down there. But Otis, Otis just seems to wander around whenever he wants, doesn't he? And apparently Otis is a known accomplice. Yeah. So why he's not arrested in question immediately? Yeah, well, they, they try and follow him because they think, uh, he'll lead us to the big man, but it doesn't get him anywhere. No, and I, I, don't, I don't think Otis is a guy who would stand very well under interrogation. No, I don't either. <laughs> They'd probably find, he'd probably lead them right to him. Yeah, it'd probably just be a case of one of the cops would draw his arm back and Otis would be like, okay, 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 he's underneath 37th Street Bridge. Or wherever. Right. But yes, I do love the lair, and apparently uh, Otis's job while they're swimming is to clean the place up. <laughs> and eat pretzels. Yeah, and eat pretzels. And uh, this is where we uh, we see the wigs for the first time. Yeah. So this is the film's answer to Hackman not wanting to uh, shave his head. That's not committing to the role for what he's being paid, is it? Let's be honest. No, but... Uh, who has, really, other than Michael Rosenbaum? <laughs> oh, Spacey did, didn't he? Spacey didn't have much hair to begin with. That's true, yeah, so shaving it off probably wasn't that big of a deal for Spacey. I thought Spacey looked better without hair than he does with it. Mm. But Gene Hackman clearly did not want... They got him to shave his mustache, so... Good, that would have been terrible. So at least uh, they got that far. Mm. You can't take off uh, Lex Luthor's uh, mustache digitally in 1978. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you can't. And I promised myself no more mustache jokes, but oh well. All right, so what do you think of this moment where uh, Luthor uh, 
gets his rope put on in the pool. I, I know that's, that's a genuinely funny moment. Next time, wait till I'm out of the pool. Right. And Otis's reaction oh, is really good. And it's, there's a lot of there's a lot of genuinely funny sight gags in this. Normally, because of Ned Beatty's playing of it. Right. Ned and Beatty I, does I, I, masterfully. Yeah, I, I don't think he gets enough credit because let's be honest, if you cut Otis out of this movie, it suddenly becomes quite po-faced. Right. Whereas Otis is the, and that's a funny, it's a funny gag. And, uh, you know, Lex, the, uh, the genius not paying attention to little details. He's so wrapped up in his uh, soliloquy here. Yeah, and his mad scheme. Right, that he's not paying attention to the details like he, like he's putting his robe on in the water. Mm. You know, funny stuff. I do wonder, though, why uh, he doesn't surround himself with better people, but whatever. <laughs> uh, well, they, they, they talked about this on Superman Movie Minute. In some of the promotional material, it was mentioned that Otis was a, a magnificent scientist. Right. Uh, does, that does not come across in the film. <laughs> it does not. <laughs> Otis doesn't look like the kind of guy who can dress himself in a morning, let alone be a magnificent scientist. Well, no, he he clearly can't because we'll see later on when they do the uh, when they after the interview they're reading the paper. Look at that suit he's wearing. <laughs> it doesn't we fit. Can't... The tie is hanging out. <laughs> All right, no, the guy can't dress himself, so he's clearly not a scientist. No, he is not. All right, so we go we go from there to the staff meeting, which. Has become kind of a a trope now, you know, after Superman's first appearance, where we have the big mm. meeting and <clears throat> everybody trying to uh, to get after that. And uh, all the newspapers he shows are analogs of the New York City papers at the time. Yep, they're all still around. Uh, I've always wanted one of those prop copies of uh, one of those newspapers. Well, definitely the uh, Cape the Cape Wonder one. Yeah, the Cape Wonder one's a, a good one. I want to know where they got that photo of him in the daylight from. Yeah, that is a good question. That is a good question. Where they got any of the photos of it yeah, from? I, I mean, it, it's it does beg the question. Some people have this theory that there is more of a period of time between Superman's first night and that scene, but that doesn't play into the idea that they're all the headlines of the paper the next day that this guy appears. No, and, and in that scene, how how can the time pass? He says in that in that scene, why did he show up last night? Yeah. So it is, I mean, the other the other theory is he did more stuff that night that we didn't see, which is possible, I suppose. Possible. But either way, he wasn't out in the daytime. No. So, oh well, <laughs> you know, just one yeah. of those, just one of those things. Yeah, another one of those things will just let slide. I think. Right. Okay. So in Lois. Time. So Lois gets this note from a friend. Who is that note from? Clark. Superman. Su- it is from Superman. I believe so. Although Clark must have been the one that planted it in her. Um, well, he had to have. Yeah, in a mail. You know, I always thought it was from Superman. Meant to be from Superman. Yeah. Chris and Rob over Superman in the movie Minute kind of uh, threw me for a loop saying that was from Clark. No, I don't get that. I I think the letter is supposed to be from Superman, although Clark's probably the one who's deposited in a mailbox. Right. Yeah, I kind of, I, I agree with that. And I love that Clark was going to answer Perry when he asked who Superman's favorite <laughs> ball team was. <laughs> yeah, I love the <laughs> idea that he was going to say something like the Smallville Sluggers or something like yeah. that. Yeah. How do you know that, Ken? <laughs> well, we already got how do you know that when he mentioned the uh, cheap promotions uh, stuff. Yeah. You know that, Ken. I'll make him a partner if I have to. Yeah, so. Uh, the, the interview, the glorious interview between the pair of them. Yeah, and it was years before I really understood this interview. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's really, this is one of those things that really plays differently as an adult. It does. All the sexual uh, 
innuendo just flew right over my head as a kid. Yeah, how big are you? Well, uh, let's start with your vital statistics. Are you married? Uh, no. No, not. Do you have a girlfriend? Uh, no, I don't. But, uh, if I did, Miss Lane, you'd be the first to know about it. Um, how old are you? Over 21. Oh, I get it. You don't want anyone to know how old. Okay. And how big are you? How tall are you? Uh, about 6'4". Six, 6'4". Four. Six four. And uh, how much do you weigh? Mm, around 225. 2... 225? Hmm. <laughs> uh, well, um, uh, I assume then that the... the rest of your bodily functions are... Normal? Sorry, beg your pardon? Well, putting it delicately. Mm -hmm. Do you eat? Uh, yes. Uh, yes, I do. When I'm hungry. You do? Mm -hmm. Of course you do. <laughs> yeah. And, uh. Why are you? I'm sorry. I mean, uh, why are you here? There must be a reason for you to be here. Yes. Mm -hmm. I'm here to fight for truth and justice in the American way. <laughs> You're going to end up fighting every elected official in this country. I'm sure you don't really mean that, Lois. I don't believe this. Lois? Hmm? I never lie. When he tells her, you know, he fights for truth, justice in the American way, obviously that's a, that's a throwback to the uh, opening of the George Reeves show and what kind of Superman kind of developed in the 50s. You know, you saw it when you were young, too. How does that, that line go go over overseas i always wondered uh I, I don't think in the 70s it mattered over much at all especially given lois's reaction to it lois's reaction to it is very real right and sells it when she says you're going to end up fighting every elected politician in in washington right and this is and, in the wake of nixon and watergate mm, so lois's cynical reaction to his naive delivering of that worked plays well because that's what everyone in the audience is thinking. Right. but i think reeve doesn't get the credit he deserves for delivering that line as well as he does well i think he doesn't get a lot of credit for delivering a lot of the lines the way he does because you watch this movie and some of the things he says it shouldn't work no they're a corny as hell right but i mean we can take the uh after the helicopter the uh the safest way to travel thing yeah compared to the way reeve pulls it off and when brandon rouse tries to pull it off yeah it just it doesn't work when yeah, when Brandon a, Routh does it. No, there's an undercurrent of humor to the way Reeves doing it. There's right. a very lightness of touch in that you, you never quite know if he is being serious. Right. And I think that's why Reeve pulls it off. There's a knowingness to the way that he delivers the lines. Um and it's there's some of it that's a bit what's it like? Why would he even admit to not being able to see through lead? He can still see Lois's chest. Right, yeah. I don't so, you know. You know, that is, why does he does he admit that? It's, again, I think, naivete. Yeah, he doesn't think there's anyone out there who can stop him, really, does he? He has no enemies at this point. No. You know, maybe maybe, maybe that one cat burglar and those guys from the boat, but they're all in jail, so he's just... There's no Lex Luthor on his horizon yet. No, there's, there's probably no reason for him to believe that anyone can stop him. Right, and, of course, he never lies, except for when he does. Except for every single day. Right. 
when he when he tells her that oh no Clark's not well he never actually comes out right and says he's not Superman no he does not he always he always plays with it because you think that that I'm Superman yeah and he never actually lies to her I suppose no what was the uh, Lois and Clark justification I just told you certain facts to keep you from finding out other certain facts yeah I didn't I never actually lied to you no I just didn't tell you everything politician <laughs> oh, did, right there yeah. Margot Kidder gets a lot of flack as well, and I never understood that. No, I don't either. Because I, I thought she was just delightful in this film. Um, her playing of, I'd be handling the flying, if you will, and she's like, you're kidding, right? Yeah. <laughs> she she does as much work in this scene to make all this work as Reeves. Oh, absolutely. Her mixture of cynicism and childlike wonder is is every bit as important as to sell in this moment as, as Christopher Reeve's performance as Superman. <laughs> Definitely, you know, Marco does does take a lot of a lot of flack, but you know, I also cut her a lot of slack because she was, you know, for me, my my first Lois. So she kind of defined what Lois Lane should be, you know, grow, growing up at least for me. You know? Mm. you know, I've you know, I work in newspapers. There's, I've never run into a journalist that looks like Terry Hatcher. <laughs> Just so she looked like somebody I'd run into at a newspaper office. Yeah, and and she's she's cute as a button in some of this. Yeah. But at the same time, she does look like, I mean, for Hollywood, she looks relatively normal. Right. Um, I mean, you know, we can make all the jokes we want about the size of her apartment and where she gets the money for that from. But maybe she's a successful novelist as well. We don't know, do we? You can make that joke in any TV show in any movie. Yeah, Friends being the, the prime example. Yeah, Friends, Supergirl. Yeah, but, I, you know... The, the, the fl- this flying scene that follows on from the interview again every bit of it is sold just as much by Margot. her reaction to everything her disbelief that she's flying is she's brilliant in it she's just as good as reeve is in fact arguably more importantly so right because she's the audience identifier and we're like what it would be like to fly with superman we're not thinking what it's like to be superman no what it's like to to fly like that for the first time and to be able to pull off that performance while stuck in a very uncomfortable rig for hours on end. Hmm. You know, just, so you always you always see this now and you just imagine that I'm, she had books down her dress, didn't she? Well, in the, in the commentary, either Manco or Donna did say that. She would read a book while they were setting up the shot. Yeah, she'd just be sat reading and then she'd stick it in the folds of her dress when they were filming. Right. You know, those, those little details. But, you know, Again, this this scene is to is to show off what they can do here. Mm. I mean, nobody there's, there's, has ever seen Superman fly like this. And really, not going to see him fly like this again after this movie, to be honest. No, I mean they try and do it again in Superman Four, but it comes across as a pale imitation. Oh, absolutely. Yes. And there's there's a lovely shot where they fly above the clouds in front of the moon. Right. That is absolutely gorgeous. But as of the point where he's got her flying at the side of him and spreading her arms out. There is no reason that at this point now you can't cut. No, there isn't. And cut straight to them hugging each other and him taking her home. All of this stuff is now self-indulgence. And I really never liked the fact Superman drops her. Yeah, because he does it deliberately as well. He's holding onto her fingertips, isn't he? Just grinning at her. He wouldn't be that irresponsible. No! I mean, I mean, his face is like, oops, didn't mean that time. Yeah, and we would have been spared the uh, can you read my mind bit. Yeah, if they'd cut the where he catches her and she puts her arms around him, cut it the. I can only say about the can you, thank God she doesn't sing that. <laughs> I think that would have been awful. Yeah. 
I mean, I don't mind. Can you read my mind? Because the whole point is that it's making this cynical, world-weary woman right. who, unlike a lot of Lois Lane's, does look like she's lived a life. Right. Which a lot of them don't. But And how he's turned her into a, a small child. Right. Yeah, he, he's but, kind of woken up that inner child in her. Yeah, which is what Superman does for all of us. And it should. But at the same time, yeah. But at the same time, in terms of a movie, you cut it when he catches her and lose all of this. Right. Because there is no need for it at this point, other than John Williams' great score. It does play better on the 2005 box, 2006, the silver tin box set. Right. You have the option to flick to an, to the music-only track. Oh, you do? Yeah, and if you flick to the music-only track just before she starts singing Can You Read My Mind, this bit works better. Yeah, but you're, it's still going through your head, though. Yeah, it's unfortunate because <laughs> you watched it that many times. It's like watching Blade Runner when you watch the the director's cuts. Now I still hear Harrison Ford's voiceover. Right. So even though you could turn it, well, even though you could turn it off, you still uh, you still hear it in your head. Like yeah. when uh, I was I was and even anytime I hear any part of the score of this film, one of the few films I can do this with. Any I hear any of the music, I know what scene it is. Yeah. A few about a month or so ago, I was listening to Garage Sale Gloat. And they ha- and then they had this soundtrack playing in the background. I'm like, there's a scene where the Jor-El's floaty head shows up for the first time. Mm. So, which I probably shouldn't be thinking about during that podcast, but no, well, you can't help it when they when they score it like that. It does what's his name? It does it does lend because you've listened to the soundtrack so many times, right. and you've watched the movie so many times. It is very easy to just know which scene they're ripping it off from. I'm like that with the new Star Wars comics. Right. I hate the art in the new Star Wars comics because it's just so obviously photo-referenced. Yeah. And I'm it takes me out because I'm going, well, that's a still from Return of the Jedi that they've used there, and that's a still from Star Wars. And it's the same with the music. You just know exactly where it is. The one thing I will say about this score is, you know, because obviously I have the music in this film on my phone, and so whenever I'm in the car, because I can put my music on random, and whenever this comes up unexpectedly, even if I'm in a bad mood, yeah, I find my mood improves when, when this score when this comes, comes on. on. And that's a good re-projection. I will say that. Which one? Uh... When when Lois says goodbye to Superman and he flies off, that's rear projection so they can have Clark come at the front door. Yeah, on the version and... I watched, the rear projection part was a little grainy. But uh, it's, it's, it looked okay on this one, but I like this film looking grainy. Yeah, oh yeah. I'm not really a big fan of when they tidy up to remove all the film grain. I think part of the charm of these 70s movies is the film grain. Oh, definitely. I think this was the second uh, bit of uh, rear projection in this scene. I think when he when, when he comes into her apartment, that's rear projection too. Because mm. you see him fly across across the uh, scene very quickly in the background. Then he goes behind the plant, and then when he comes out, it's him live action going a lot slower. Yeah. <laughs> but no, it and it has to work here. That's the only way you could do it because he has to leave and then be Clark Kent at the front door. Yeah. I do wonder why Clark made a date with Lois on the night that he knew she was meeting Superman. And I kind of wonder if Lois knew about it. <laughs> she, she, well, she, when he opens the door, he does say, uh, did you forget? So she's obviously made this date on the night that she's got an interview, but she blew Clark off earlier on. Right, yeah. Going meeting the, the, the night before, yeah, the night before. She yeah. was, he was trying to ask around, and she was completely ignoring him. I want to know how this date went. I, w- I want to know how Clark and Lois's date went that night. I want to know why they're going they're going out for a hamburger dressed <laughs> dress, dress to the nines. Dressed like that, yeah. Uh, New York was a different place then. <laughs> it, it, it still is. <laughs> <laughs> but before they go out for their hamburger, we get the moment that everybody talks about. 
Oh, yeah, when he straightens his body up and uses his body language. Yeah, and yeah, when he changes from Clark to Superman to Clark in the space of a minute. Mm. Lois, there's something I have to tell you. I'm really... Uh, I mean, I, I was, uh, at first, really nervous about tonight. Uh, but then I decided, well, darn it, I was going to show you the time of your life. That's Clark, nice. I was thinking maybe we could go for a hamburger or whatever you want to do. And, you know, I watched the scene a couple times because I wanted to like, kind of look at the mirror. Because you don't often think to look at the mirror behind it. Mm. And you can see Lois coming in and out. And it, she she's oblivious to it, but I like how... He was going to tell her who he was, and then change, then change. I don't know if he changed his mind or chickened out, one of the two. Yeah. But it's just a, a great moment. It shows off Reeves, Reeves' range at the two characters. Mm, and his ability to differentiate between the two of them. Yeah, you see. As a kid, Reeve, you know, I'm not going to say Reeve was able to fool me, but I can watch Reeve and say, yeah, I can see how people were fooled. Yeah. Um, I mean, especially when you consider that throughout the film – only really Lois and, and Jimmy meet Superman. Right. And Lois Lois isn't seeing anything properly after that point. No, she sees too, Superman. Jimmy's yeah, and Jimmy's too busy taking pictures. Right. But you know, Perry I don't think Perry meets Superman in any of the four films. Uh I don't I you know, I think you may be right. He's the obviously when Superman shows up for the fight with Zod, but they don't actually meet each other, do they? No, I don't think so. I don't think there are any scenes of of them together. Not uh, uh, Superman. Yeah, he's there, but he's just he there may even moment. still be unconscious. Actually, I can't remember the sequence of events. Yes, he does yes, get he, out, he is. Doesn't he? he is unconscious. Right. He is unconscious. So he doesn't even see Superman at that point. No. So no, I think you're right. I don't think Perry does meet Superman. No, uh, no line. No. So obviously, he could have off camera, but and, you know, and a lot of people say, you know, well, how come everybody he works with don't know? I mean, I think people just assume that Clark is just as famous as Superman. When he's yeah, not, I mean, you working in a place as big as that. You're not going to know everybody. Yeah, you don't know everyone. You may see somebody that you know works in your building to nod at them. Right. But you wouldn't you wouldn't look at him and go, well, he's obviously Superman. I mean, the whole point of one of the of the scenes, I think, is that Clark's anonymous. Right. There's that, that big scene in the middle where the camera pulls back and Clark sat in the Daily Planet offices all alone in this crowd of people and nobody's taking the slightest bit of notice of it. Right. And later in the film, Clark is going to jump out of a window and nobody's going to notice. Yeah, no one notices that he's gone. <laughs> <laughs> or that he goes to the window and jumps out. Yeah. So, so. I think the, the thing with that criticism is always, I think, that there are certain segments of the viewing public who think that the characters know what we know. Right. And they don't. No, and I'm going to steal from uh, Babylon 5 for a minute. When uh, there's an episode where Garibaldi goes into down below in, in disguise. And he has this great line about how people don't see him. They see his uniform. Won't you be recognized? Are you kidding? First, I don't get into down below a lot. And second, when I do, they don't see me. They see the badge. And third, I have an excellent disguise. Let's go. Yeah, so when kinda, he's not wearing the uniform, yeah. I kind of take that to see the same way with Superman. Hmm. You don't see Superman. You see that. You see the costume. Yeah, you see the K. You see the S. Right. You see the, more of the super than you see the, see the man. And when you look at Clark, yeah. you're not looking for Superman. No. You yeah. see the schlub with slicked back her big glasses and a ill-fitting suit. Right. 
So, you know, obviously, uh, Reeve pulls it off better than most of the other actors do. <laughs> Not every actor can do it. Reeve has done it better than just about all of them, I think. Yeah, because I don't think a lot of them really have got the opportunity to do both to the extent that he did. You know, George Reeves essentially played Clark Kent a lot. Right. And then Superman would show up and save the day. And Dean Kane played Clark Kent a lot. Yeah, but... And Superman was just kind of there for five minutes an episode. Right. Tom Welling never played Superman. Don't tell Magnus that. <laughs> <laughs> he, was, he, he was always Clark Kent. Because right. that was the point of the show to me. He wasn't Superman yet. Yeah, so he didn't really play. He didn't really play Superman. Brandon Routh was doing an imitation of Christopher Reeve playing Clark Kent and Superman, which is a shame because I really would have loved to see what. Having seen Legends of Tomorrow, I would have loved to see what Routh could have yeah. done. Yeah, because he's, he's really good in Legends of Tomorrow. Yeah. He is Clark Kent in Legends of Tomorrow, isn't he? He's a big goofball, and he's had some moments where I thought he was a better Superman than he was in Superman Returns. Yeah, yeah, when he's got to really come out and save the day as uh, as Captain Atom. Right, or when but, he has to make an inspirational speech. Yeah, he's, he's good at that. And I, I really like Ralph in Legends of Tomorrow. I do too. But Legends of Tomorrow has rapidly become my favourite of the CW shows. It's easily the most fun. It, yeah, because it's looked at itself and gone, we are a ridiculous show. Let's embrace that. Yeah, and they do. Yeah, Bebo. <laughs> <laughs> and then Henry Cavill, again, hasn't really had a chance to be, to Clark. be Clark. No. He's, he's the opposite. He's not really had a chance to be Clark Kent. He has not. And he's never had the chance to play that off Lois either because she knew from the get-go. Yeah, because she knows from the get-go that he's Superman. And I know it's stretching credibility somewhat, but part of the fun of it is Lois not knowing that he's Superman. Oh, yeah. That's just part of the, the whole deal. Right, yeah, a lot of this middle section is why we've started talking about Legends of Tomorrow. Right, exactly. So It's now, Lex's plan, isn't it? Yeah, and yeah, we're going to go right from the interview to uh, Lex uh, reading, to them reading the paper, reading the interview, and uh, they learn a lot more than Superman told Lois. Yes, they do. <laughs> <laughs> Pres- when did Lois write that? She went straight from her date with Superman to a date with Clark to have that in the morning paper. Did she get home from the date with Clark and just fuel herself on coffee and cigarettes to get that article in before? Because what's publishing time for a morning paper? It's about two o'clock in the morning, isn't it? Back then, I don't know. Well, back then, there were more editions. There, right. There was, I mean, now, I mean, all the newspapers I worked at lately, our deadline was like 1230 in the morning. So, right. But back then, more editions, or the pl- presumably the planet had, I mean, we don't know what time of day it is. So the Planet had a morning edition and an afternoon edition. Even uh, some of the small papers that were where I lived, they don't do this anymore. But they used to have an early edition that went out to uh, subscribers who would get the paper delivered in the morning. And then the newsstand would get a final edition an hour or so later, right. which was a little more updated, which might have been updated with any late-breaking news that there might have been. So we don't know what time of day this is. Maybe it's the afternoon edition. Maybe it's a day later. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, nobody else had this story, so... Yeah, so presumably she did then. She just came home and fueled herself on coffee and cigarettes and got that story out. Maybe she's just very good at embellishment. Well, she she embellished her pretty good. Yeah, she did. Maybe she had conversations with him why they were flying that we never saw. Yeah, maybe. I mean, we, did, we didn't get any dialogue during that scene. Yeah, so it's entirely possible she was asking him questions as she went along. Because obviously when she's flying for the first time, she can think about these things. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, because, I mean, obviously, Miss Tessmacher is all about his physical uh, attributes. Yep. 
So that well, we know where she got all that from, and that he tells the truth, and how Lex gets all of his information about how long it took for him for the rocket to get to Earth. Well, Lex makes some leaps in logic that I don't know where he got his information, but and how he gets from there to Kryptonite, I don't know, but he does. He's a yeah, genius. He, he's a genius. He, so I'm not going to argue with him. Yeah, he's he's smart, so he knows what he's doing. Maybe he's done some astronomy. So. Yeah, and then the vast majority of this middle section is, like you say, it's just them stealing the, the XK rockets. Right, it's villainous hijinks. Yeah, and it's fine. Yeah, it, it is. It, it plumes along just right. It explains what's going to happen and the plot, and there's some nice comedy moments between Hackman and, and Otis, even if they do revolve around him beating the shit out of Otis. In a moving vehicle. Yep. While he's driving. Yeah, Miss, and then Miss Tessmacher suddenly realizes and she's like, oh! Yeah. yeah. But which was which was a comedy moment. It, it, it was, and I'm glad they cut some of the other stuff out. Yeah. I did think the uh, that army leader was a little too uh, eager to give Miss Tessmacher mouth, mouth to mouth. Well, he was J.R. Ewing. Yes. And he made everybody do it about, an about face so he couldn't, he couldn't see what he was doing. Hmm. So. Clever. No nope. rest of that, that, that all goes along quite well. It does. And we see Otis, uh, you can clear, clear, clearly see that he puts in the wrong information. He's got 117 written there on his arm. Yep. And there's a blank spot. So Nice attention to detail. It is. And he does get beaten down by Lex while he's trying to drive. And the, my one question, though, becomes, how long did Miss Tessmacher have to hang out on that bridge in that dress? <laughs> Quite a while. <laughs> dress as Marilyn Monroe. Because that'll work. Well, this was the plan B, wasn't it? She's in the, the poncy, flashy dress because plan A should have worked if Otis wasn't an idiot. Right. But, and so thinking about that, I'm wondering if they were ever going to mess with this missile at all. But didn't they have to anyway? Because, one, for the first time I decided to pay attention to the numbers. Mm. They don't match what Luthor should have, Luthor wanted Otis to put in. Right. So... And if I remember correctly, I haven't watched the ending yet, but the one that Otis screws up is the one that goes toward Hackensack. Yeah. So maybe he did mean for it to go toward Metropolis, and Otis is a miscalculation sent it to Hackensack. Yeah, possibly. And Luther's like, I don't really care where it goes. But I'll beat on Otis just the same. Yeah. As long as one of them destroys the, the California coastline, right. I'm not really bothered. Exactly, and I guess I guess you know if any time is going to pass this movie, it's got to be here. Yeah, because you know you can't do all this in uh, two hours. No, and, and obviously Lois and Jimmy need uh, to have time to get given these assignments as right. well, and Clark's presumably off on his own assignments. But yeah, I think you're right. I think if there is a passage of time anywhere, it's got to be here after yeah after Superman's first uh, date with Lois and that newspaper coming out and here. And uh, you mentioned Lois is on assignment. First, we see Jimmy at the uh, well at the Hoover Dam. They go to great pains to make it sound like it's not the Hoover Dam, but it's the Hoover Dam. But it's it's clearly the Hoover Dam, right? Stock footage of which is used in many many TV shows throughout the eighties, right? And uh, speaking of people nearly driving off the road, Lo- yes, that, that, I thought that was a nice callback, right? And the journalist in me thinks, why is she doing this interview in a moving vehicle? <laughs> Are there no? Yeah. Diners in this part of uh, wherever she is. Yeah, why are they not just at the dam with with Jimmy? Right. Wandering around the land that has been bought. Why are they driving? But, I mean, I can see maybe he's uh, she's showing or something. But why she's doing this interview in the car with the microphone and the tape recorder, I don't know. Because, you know, 
all this talk about you know cell phones while you're driving. Yeah, you, you probably... she's here with a she. She's not looking at the road. No, not at all. And he has to remind her to look at the yeah, road. I love that bit when he just taps on the dashboard. Yeah. And Lois <laughs> like, oh, shit, like, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is a good moment. When I, the first time I saw any kind of extended edition of this movie, a buddy of mine had uh, had it recorded off tape, off a of videotape, and for some reason it left this scene out. Oh, all right. So me having to be a completist. I had to dub it back in. Because I'm like, why is that scene not there? Yeah, it's a, it seems a curious scene to edit out. Yeah, you know, just... It's important enough that, to know why the dam is important. Well, they don't really mention anything about the dam in what's no, left. You, it's extended yeah, need, in the three-hour cut. But you need the, the Indian chief though, telling her that, you know, for what he's paid for this worthless piece of land, because it sets up a lot a bit another part of Lex's plan. Right, because we don't know it's Lex Luthor yet. Yeah, if you're going to cut a little bit out somewhere, cut a bit out the flying sequence, which is completely irrelevant to the plot. Right, it is. You know, the plot just, you know, while the flying scene is beautiful to look at, the the movie really comes to a complete halt at that point. Hmm. So. Whereas now it's picked up again. Right. Now it's picked up again. We're going to go right from here into back to the planet where Clark is going to receive his message from Luthor. And that's kind of where we're going to call this segment. So, Andy, I'd like to thank you for joining me. That's all right, mate. It's good. That enjoyed that. You know, this was this was like I said, the first time Andy's been on the show, so that crosses uh, one of the items off my podcasting bucket list. <laughs> well, I hope I was good. Ah, you 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 were fine. I even got you to laugh a couple times. <laughs> Which is one of the things I miss when you do Palace. Yeah, well, I'm on my own, man, aren't I? Yeah. Although I have just recorded one where Nathaniel Wayne's email made me laugh. So. Oh, okay. No one laughs on a podcast quite like you do. Thank you very much. So, like I said, thank you for uh, thank you, thank you for joining me. I mean, I guess I'm the one who, who got up super early, but yeah, yeah, you got up early. I wasn't doing anything else to be honest with you. <laughs> you know, like I said, I always uh, do this stuff at night when everybody's asleep. So, just I'm burning the candle at a different end today instead of uh, the night end. It's the morning end. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, we've already went over where where they can find you. I don't think I left anything out. The Fantastic Cast, Listen to the Prophets, Overlook Dark Night on the. Uh, mm-hmm. That's on Michael Bailey's uh, Fortress of Bailey Yeah, that's Network. on Fortress of Bailey Cheered, yeah. Palace of Glitch and Delights, yeah. Hey, Kids Comics. Yeah, there you go. And there actually was, well, it'll be a few months uh, by the time this drops, uh, but uh, Andy and uh, Michael just released as of this recording a few weeks ago, uh, Hey, Hey, Kids, uh, an addendum to their Happy Birthday Superman coverage yep. from several years ago, which means I got to read, I got to get around to reading Man of Steel 1 to 6. <laughs> <laughs> it will not take you a long time. No, I'm sure it won't. <laughs> All right, so... Then thank you for joining me. Next time, I'll be finishing up uh, the rest of the movie. With Scott Gardner and Gene Hendricks. Till next time, folks. We're all on the same team. Good night. Mm. See ya. The Man of Spain Podcast is produced by Mike Zeno. All opinions expressed on the show are those of Mike Zemo and his guests and no one else. All music and sound clips used on the show are for review purposes only and no copyright infringement is intended. All music and sound clips are copyright their original copyright owners. The Man of Screen is a member of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network and can be found at www.twotruefreaks.com. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at twotruefreaks.com to shop there. If you do, the Two True Freaks get a 
little cut of what you buy, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you can shop as usual and help out the two true freaks at the same time. Email to this show can be sent to manofscreen at gmail.com. And you can also leave the show a review on iTunes. That will help others find the show. Thank you for listening to the Man of Screen Podcast.